All right, thanks for joining us for hour number two of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. That would be uh, me. We're going to see if we can't crank it up here in hour number two. Keep it going for you. Keep it rolling. Talking about news, talking about politics, and talking about it all from a Christian worldview perspective because I happen to be a Christian, evangelical Christian at that, and uh, I serve at North Greenville University in the South Carolina Baptist Convention, also Five Forks Baptist Church. All right. Um, just a couple of quick things. I, I said we were going to change gears, but there's there are a few things that we need to note before we move on from talking about the balloon stuff. Uh, I Senator Marco Rubio was, of course, he sits on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and that that may be an oxymoron, by the way, Senate Intelligence. But anyway, we, we know what it means. It means the people who sit on the committee get intelligence from our intelligence sources, and they get briefings up to a certain point. Um, he said, Marco Rubio, that is, that he doesn't expect the U.S. to discover much information from the balloon wreckage. And this is the reason. He was on ABC this week, yesterday. He said, the Chinese sort of suspected this might happen. They flew this thing across the middle of the United States. So I imagine whoever designed it and put it up there realized at some point the Americans may get their hands on this. It's quite possible that it was designed in such a way that there wouldn't be much value to us in that regard. Back to my original statement. The Chinese don't do anything that doesn't have a purpose. I would be shocked if we're able to find out anything of real value from the wreckage of this thing for that very reason that the Chinese had to have known if this is what they if if this was their intent if this thing didn't they didn't lose control of it not because it was a weather balloon but because it was a surveillance balloon and that it traveled across the United States and revealed itself more than they expected um, if if they knew that was a possibility I guarantee you they had a way of keeping uh, the information from the balloon from getting into our hands, or at least I would I would think that they would. All right, you know, it, it turns out the United States, you know, I'd said at the beginning of the program this morning that the United States uses these balloons as well as the Chinese and other sophisticated developed military countries use them because they have a purpose that augments. It doesn't replace but it augments our satellite technology and spy technology that comes from the sky. Well, it turns out that the United States has been using these balloons to take a look at Americans, or at least to look for, as they say, drug trafficking patterns and perhaps find out about problems uh, domestically before they begin. Here's a story that was published in August from USA Today of 2019. And the story is from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It originally appeared in The Guardian, which is a British newspaper. But it says unmanned surveillance balloons are being launched from South Dakota to conduct surveillance over the Midwest, prompting concerns about privacy violations. The Pentagon is testing the high-altitude solar-powered balloons across six states, The Guardian reported on Friday. The balloons were launched to provide a, quote, persistence surveillance system for narcotics trafficking and homeland security threats, according to a filing with the Federal Communications Commission. The FCC authorized the Sierra Nevada Corporation, a Nevada-based national security and aerospace contractor, experimental special temporary authorization for the balloons on July 12th. 
And that authorization ran out on September 1st, according to the filing. So we had a number of these balloons manufactured by the United States, controlled by the Pentagon, flying over six states in the Midwest, looking for supposedly drug traffickers and homeland security threats. But they were actually testing this balloon technology. Now, this is back in 2019. This is 2023, which tells me that the United States found value in this balloon technology. There's something about, and I, I, I'm not the person, one of the things that I suggested is that the amount of time that a balloon can linger over a target and the fact that it's not as detectable by um, you know, our warning systems because of how high it can fly and the fact that it doesn't have a whole lot of radar or sophisticated information or, or stuff on it that would trigger our early warning system. So maybe that's the whole thing. Um, but as I said, the United States has been involved in this for a, quite a while. They were testing it in 2019, and who knows what kind of information they gleaned over six Midwestern states while they were in the process of testing out the technology. All right, uh, moving on. I want to talk about the Biden administration considering to declare a public health emergency as it relates to abortion. Uh, this, this is a story that's been building over the last year, actually ever since Roe versus Wade was overturned. The Biden administration promised abortion rights advocates, which of course are big supporters of the Democrat Party, uh, Planned Parenthood, big financial supporters of the left, progressive causes. Uh, the, the Biden administration is going to come up with anything that it can to thwart the opportunity that states have to pass their own laws regarding abortion, which it, it clearly demonstrates, first of all, that President Biden doesn't believe in federalism. That is, he doesn't believe in states' rights. Progressives don't believe in that. They, they don't want states to be able to determine for themselves what course they're going to choose when it comes to their issues. They want the federal government to force its will on every state to conform to what progressives think is the right thing to do. And so the administration is constantly looking for ways to do that. I mean, go back to the vaccine. I mean, you had um, OSHA trying to, trying to use its power to supersede state requirements about vaccines and make every business in America, every corporation, vaccinate all of its employees. That was found to be unconstitutional. That the, the United States Supreme Court said, back off. The, the government, you, you don't have the power, certainly not, the, not OSHA, a government agency, doesn't have that kind of power over Americans' lives. And yet the Biden administration does same thing with the student loan forgiveness. Can't get something done through the Congress. So I'm just going to decree it and I'm going to make every state com comply with it. And now that's being looked at constitutionally, that it's likely that the president doesn't have the power to just unilaterally declare everybody's student loan up to a certain level to be null and void. You know, the, the, Progressives think that once they get in power, that power can be used to advance their causes 
from the office itself. It doesn't matter about the Constitution or what federalism says. The same thing is about to happen here when the Biden administration declares a national health emergency over abortion. Now, I want you to think about that. National health emergencies in the past have been used when there's been an outbreak of a disease, when there's been a a drug epidemic, when there's been some type of weather event that has affected a large swath of the United States and there's disease or something happening related to the fact that the weather has destroyed the infrastructure of a state. That's that's when the, the United States would come in and declare a health emergency. Do you realize what they're, they're saying here? That women getting pregnant is a health emergency. If they can't terminate their pregnancy by abortion, then that requires the government to declare an emergency. The most natural thing in the world for a woman to be pregnant. And by the way, men still can't be pregnant. Women who declare themselves to be men can be pregnant, but but biological males do not have the ability to be pregnant. Pregnant. They don't have a uterus. They don't. I mean, we could go on and on. Okay, we're not going to do an equipment recital here. We're just going to leave it at that. That's common sense. Women are the ones that get pregnant, and that's by design, by God's design, created in His image. We were made to be fruitful and to multiply, and to fill the earth, and subdue it. And the only part of that that progressives embrace is the subdue part. They want to subdue all the earth under progressive thinking. They don't, they don't want to look at God's purpose in procreation. And to the point that they're actually willing to declare a woman who is pregnant that she's having a health emergency. But it's, it's like a baby is being turned into a tumor, something that needs to be removed. And a lot of uh, abortion advocates, and, and by the way, that's not going over the top. A lot of abortion advocates have already suggested that, that a baby is a foreign object in a woman's body that needs to be removed or done away with. That's what you would have to believe for the health department to get away with saying, we're going to declare a national health emergency. Now, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'll tell you what some of the things that could happen if the Biden administration goes through with this, and I don't think there's any doubt they're going to do it. I mean, I also think the Supreme Court will rule it unconstitutional, but who knows the damage that will happen in between. By the way, speaking of listening to the program, um, Gary Miller is going to be retiring on March 31st, and, I mean, that's after a lot of years in radio and we're going to be talking about yeah i'm sorry i i emphasize yeah. that too much don't i yeah you did yes okay he's, he's i been, might retire sooner if you don't been, stop it he's he's been at it for a while okay uh just like me now we're not that far apart in age so um he's he's a little ahead of me but not not way ahead but in any event he's he's going to be retiring on march 31st i was trying to be complimentary about all the time he's spent in radio and the influence he's had um, but he deserves. It's time for that to happen. And uh, the decision's been made that since that's going to happen, and he is the one who keeps everything spinning over here, uh, that they're going to change formats. And that happens in radio all the time. That shouldn't be considered something to be upset about or aggravated. It's, it's, just, it, it's just one of those things. 
but the talk radio format that we have here is going to be going away March 31st. So all the talk radio programs that you listen to on his radio talk will no longer be available on 91.9 or 89.7 on April 1st. March 31st will be the last day. So uh, just making you aware of that. And I also need to make you aware that uh, this program is going to continue in some form. I'm still I'm, I'm in the middle of working on it. I got a, I'm working on uh, having a YouTube channel added. I'm still going to be on Facebook Live for those of you that join the pro, join, enjoy the program there. And I would appreciate you getting the word out that we're going to be uh, continuing and let people know that they can watch in the mornings. This is I don't know what form it's going to take yet, but it's going to be in the mornings for some portion. It'll be a five-day-a-week program. I'm not going to cut back to just doing a podcast occasionally. Nothing wrong with that. But because I've established for a lot of years having a morning show, we're going to continue doing a morning show. It's not going to be two hours, probably an hour. Um, haven't decided exactly what the time frame will be. But uh, we'll still be doing it. And it'll be available on Facebook and it'll be available uh, on a YouTube channel, hopefully, and then it'll be a podcast that will also be available. And we're going to build out the website that we have for this program to expand and have other news stories. It'll be a place where you can go and listen to the program streaming live. You'll have links to other programs like Hannah Miller's podcast, Corey Truax's podcast, Austin's thinking about starting a podcast, and he's certainly going to do some writing uh, that would be included on the website that we would have that I'm, I'm going to try to maintain. So there's going to be some changes, but the, the bottom line is that it's still, it's still going to be here in some form. Might even change the name because it's a little bit confusing for podcasting when you say Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Bean. What does that mean? Do you do theology? Do you do apologetics? Are you doing, well, no, this program's always been about commenting on politics and the news from a Christian perspective. So we may need to come up with a name that reflects that. Um, all right, back to the Biden administration declaring this public health emergency or the possibility of it. On Monday, Secretary of Health and Human Services Javier Becerra said this. He said, quote, there are discussions on a wide range of measures that we can take to try to protect people's rights. Now, let me start right there. To protect people's rights, that would be people's rights that the administration agrees with. There's no attempt to protect everybody's rights. There's no attempt to recognize states' rights. In fact, all of this is an attempt to find a way for the federal government to usurp a state's ability to pass its own laws once the Supreme Court said that that's where the question of abortion should lie. Administration can't let that happen. You know, they've had 80 Democrat House members uh, have been complaining to Biden and pushing him to do this. He realizes this is going to be beyond the pale. I mean, he, he realizes this is going to be problematic to come out and declare a public health emergency for pregnancy. Okay, Now, they're not going to say that, of course. They'll frame it as it's a public health emergency because, because abortion is health care. If you want to know why the left all of a sudden began to frame abortion as health care, Here's the reason, because if they can win that battle of words, then it expands the government's opportunity to treat it as health care and therefore declare this emergency that would supersede states' rights and states' laws. 
So, Basira, let's get back to what he said. He said, there are discussions on a wide range of measures we can take to try to protect people's rights. There are certain criteria you can look for to declare a public health emergency. I have the ability to make a declaration. That's, that's a threat. I mean, that's a, that's a telegraph. He's, he's letting everybody know, look, um, I can do this, and there's not much anybody can do about it because we're the government. We're the Biden administration. We get to make decisions about your life. You don't get to make them unless they agree with our position. This is essentially what, what's being said here. Uh, he went on to say that the Department of Health and Human Services hasn't completed a full assessment yet, but they're evaluating it now, which means they're on the edge. You, we could hear something about this this week or next week. Now, legal experts, what would this mean if the Biden administration declares a health emergency. It would make it easier. This is just some of the things that would happen. It would make it easier for women in the 13 states where abortion is outright banned to obtain pregnancy-ending drugs. It would open up uh, RDU-486. It would open up other drugs that can end pregnancy and make it very difficult for states to stop those drugs from being administered in, within their territory. It would also make it easier in states that don't allow doctors to prescribe the drug over telehealth appointments. Right now, South Carolina has a, has a law. You can't get an abortion through telehealth. You can't, get a, uh, you can't be prescribed an abortifacient through telehealth. So um, it, 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 could, it could affect that law in South Carolina. It could also allow the administration to direct funding to deploy to direct public health services for teens and accelerate access to new medications that are authorized for abortions. So this is going to this is going to allow the health and human services to begin to take massive resources and put it toward finding other drugs that'll kill a baby in the womb and also to make those drugs available to teenagers without their parents' permission. By declaring it a health emergency, it gives the government more authority in that area where they could just simply say, because this is a health emergency, teenagers can obtain uh, abortifacients without their parents' permission, which is already happening in a lot of places anyway. But it would expand that. And here's the, It would also shield medical professionals who offer abortion drugs from being prosecuted under their state laws. Uh, so, in other words, if you've got a, a doctor in a state where abortion is outlawed and they commit an abortion or they make an abortion possible by prescribing an abortifacient, then state laws that would prosecute them for breaking the law, they, it, the federal government would intervene and provide a shield and nullify state law when it comes to those doctors who perform the procedure or who give a prescription for an abortifacient. So this is, I mean, this is not some small thing. If the Biden administration comes out and says, oh, pregnancy, woman being pregnant, that's a health care emergency. We've got to give women the blanket right to kill their babies so there can be more healthy. That's the most absurd thing. Abortions affect the health of a woman negatively unless... Her life is in danger at the point of the baby being born. I mean, this study after study has shown that. I mean, some women who have an abortion can't have a baby when they want to have a baby. 
Some women who have abortion, it appears that there are links to an increased risk of breast cancer. I mean, there are all kinds of things, all bad, that can happen to women because of abortion, not counting the fact that they're killing their baby and psychologically and emotionally, they're going to have to deal with that with the rest of their, for the rest of their life, regardless of what others around them say or even sometimes what they say. So the final thing that it would do is it could also provide government funding for women to travel in order to obtain an abortion. So now, because it's a public health emergency, the federal government could just put some money out there that would give women the ability to, if they can't afford to get to California or some state that is a haven for abortion, like New York or Illinois or California, then the government could pay their expenses to be able to travel. On Tuesday, Senator Senator, uh, Senator Rubio introduced a bill in the Senate that would prevent the administration from using public health emergency declarations to override state laws. Problem is, it'll never pass in a Democrat-controlled Senate because the Democrats want to control state laws. They don't believe in federalism unless it benefits them, unless the states agree with the federal government. And federalism was designed to allow the states to have their distinctiveness from the federal government. And you can't have distinctiveness if you're going to if you're going to be progressive and you're going to rule from the top down. So any bill that would be in the Senate would never pass. If it did, it it might pass the House as well, but then would be vetoed by the president and require two-thirds to override, and we don't have anything like that in the Senate or the House. So we'll keep tracking this, and we'll let you know what happens in the next week or two. You know, I've talked about this on the program before. When I was a kid, my mom was a big fan of all the awards programs. I mean, particularly the Oscars, but she would also watch the Grammys and uh, the Tonys. And every time there was an award program out there, you know, it was it was something kind of a family thing. Mom wanted the TV on the awards programs, and I so I grew up watching them and being fascinated by the people who gave the speeches, pulling for different people and different movies and so forth. Well. Since the left has completely destroyed all that by turning every award show into a platform to attack traditional values and to undermine Christianity, for that matter, um, I've, I've stopped watching. I don't pay any attention. I don't care who wins the Grammy. I don't care who wins the Oscar. It's uh, all it is. All these programs are are vehicles for progressive thought. And they're just opportunities for the left to publicly attack people who have any kind of traditional sense of values. So why why do I want to why do I want to put myself through that? Um, and and the awards are not given for movies or and this has been true for a long time. I mean movies that anybody's seen. You know I I guarantee you Top Gun Maverick's not going to win uh, the Oscar for Best Picture. Because too many people saw it, it was very popular. They lo- people liked it because it gave a uh, sort of a, a hurrah to traditional values that were being that were on display in a lot of ways in that movie. Courage, pro-American, pro-military, all of those things. So I use I had not planned to talk about the Grammys at all, but a few years ago. Um, might have been. It's been a couple of years now. I think 
I mean, you had Megan the Stallion uh, come out with just a just it was porn. Okay, it was it it was a video um, about a song that I can't. I'm not even going to say the title. Um, I've never said the title in public. I I said it one time to my wife because she wanted to know what what the all the hubbub was about, and I was embarrassed to tell her the title of what of the song. And I'm I'm not even going to use the initials because it, it, it's kind of easy to figure out at this point. So anyway, on the Grammys, they they pretty much I mean what they did was horrible. Uh, it was and a lot of people referenced it. Last night, according to the Daily Wire, viewers of the 65th annual Grammy Awards slammed a performance by Sam Smith and Kim Petras as demonic over its satanic theme. Now I've looked at I'm I don't want to watch the whole thing. I I don't I'm not interested. But the just the still pictures that I see from this performance tells me everything I need to know. It tells me that I don't have to dive into this mess in order to be able to determine that it was a glorification of Satan. The duo who won the 2023 Grammy Award for best pop duo group performance for the song unholy, um, was surrounded by red lights and a fire backdrop. Smith wore a hat with horns and was encircled by dancers that used props that had allusions to BDSM themes, according to The Hollywood Reporter. The song praises um, some god. It's B-A-L-E-N-C-I-A-G-A. I get Balenciaga. I don't, I'd have to look it up. I mean, I don't even know what the heck this is. But I know by the title of the song that it's unholy. Um, social media influencer Ian Miles uh, Chong noted in a tweet that contained a screenshot of the song's lyrics. I mean, it, it, and I've got the lyrics here in front of me. Um, I don't even recommend that you go read them because there's no redeeming value. You know, the Bible talks about giving credence to whatsoever is good, whatsoever is is right, whatsoever is true, whatsoever is of a good report. I mean, none of this, it, all it does is glorify evil and bring our culture down to a level that is, quite frankly, disgusting and crude. Um, so I just want to mention it. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because it's it. you need to know it's an indicator of the tolerance that we have for things that are pure evil. Can you imagine if there was a Christian song that glorified Jesus Christ, that extolled the virtues of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If those things were put on display, then there would be a hue and cry from progressives declaring that to be not a separation of church and state. It would declare that you're promoting Christianity. They promote the idea that Christianity is the evil in the world while putting on display satanic demonstrations and the things that undermine our culture by just dragging us down to a place where we don't even know the difference between right and wrong or men and women anymore. And all of this taking place at a Grammy Award show. Um, all right. That's enough about that because I don't 
I, I mean, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it simply because I don't want to draw a whole lot of attention to it, but you need to know that it happened because it's another indicator of where we are and how we need God. We need revival. We need people who believe in good and decent things in this country to defend them and to call out this garbage for what it is. You can't let things like this just troll past us without at least calling attention to the fact that this is how sleazy our culture has become, particularly in our entertainment forms. All right. Before I get into this next uh, story, full disclosure, my son, as you know, works for the Associated Press. Uh, he lives in California. I'm very proud of him. He's a Christian. He leads his family as a believer, um, and he writes for the Associated Press. He covers the State House, which primarily financial issues, but occasionally he'll write about other stories in California. But he does it without bias. He does it without injecting himself into the story, which is the way he was trained as a reporter. There are still people out there that believe that. But the company that he's worked for, he works for, the Associated Press, added an entry to its style guide directing journalists to put the term crisis pregnancy center in scare quotes and to use anti-abortion center instead to convey that the center's general aim is to prevent abortions. So that's in the style guide. I mean, at a time when there have been 80-plus attacks, and some say up to 200 against crisis pregnancy centers across the country that exist to help women, to give them resources. When women decide to have their baby, that's considered to be a terrible choice. And so now crisis pregnancy centers are being attacked in the wake of Roe versus Wade being overturned. And the Associated Press has decided that they want to contribute to that. The AP added this entry between November 20th and November 27th, 2022, according to the Daily Signal's search of the, of the Wayback Machine. The guide describes the centers to set up to divert or discourage women from having abortions and warns writers against potentially misleading terms like pregnancy resource centers or pregnancy counseling centers. If using the term anti-abortion center, Explained later, they explain later that these often are known as crisis pregnancy centers and that their aim is to dissuade people from getting an abortion, the style guide says. Thomas Gleasner, president of the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, told the Daily Signal it's disgraceful that so called journalistic professionals succumb to pro abortion political activists to do their bidding. If they actually cared about integrity, they would know that pregnancy centers seek to help women who are facing unplanned pregnancies with material and emotional support. Many centers also provide medical services for free. Psalm 139 Project, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, they provide ultrasound machines for free to crisis pregnancy centers so that women can get a pregnancy test for free. They can get an ultrasound for free. They get all these services. They get support from the Carolina Pregnancy Center in Spartanburg to the Earn While You Learn program that they have for women who can 
access all kinds of supplies, things they need. CPC has handed out diapers and formula that was uh, in short supply. They just had women driving through during COVID, driving through the parking lot, getting things that they couldn't get at the store. And some of these women were crying and talking about what a service it was to them. And this is the kind of thing that the AP wants to demonize and progressives want to shut down because they don't offer abortions. They do offer hope, and they offer a witness of Jesus Christ, which is eternal life for those who believe. And I, I mean, I don't know what to say about that other than it's just an— it, it is the coarsening of our culture. It is institutional agreement with progressives that want to undermine the values that made America a great place to live. And they're continuing to do it every day. Okay, there's an article at National Review today that uh, you need to check out. It's by Madeline Kearns. And the title of it is Trans and Teens, The Social Contagion Factor is Real. Now, we've talked about this before on the program and several times, but the fact is that transgender, transgenderism is proliferating in the United States, mainly among young girls. And the common factor that these young girls have is that they're very much tied to social media, and that's where the fad of being transgender is being transmitted to these young women. The article goes on to say, it says, well, it begins by talking about transgenderism. It says, it's the belief that every person has a gender identity, an inner sense of being male, female, something else, or in between, distinct from his or her sex, and that when the two conflict, gender identity should take precedence. That's as good a definition as I've ever seen. It's pretty simple, straight to the point. It's perhaps surprising that this idea has caught on, yet according to Pew Research, over 5% of Americans under 30 now identify as transgender or non-binary, combined with 1.6% of the total adult population and just 0.3% of people over 50. But the mainstreaming of transgenderism has encouraged more people to declare themselves trans. So now that everybody's talking about transgender and that's on uh, media programs, it's talk radio, it's television programs, it's everything in the media, trans, music, you name it. Then the question is, is that encouraging people who are trans to come out and declare themselves as transgender, or is the peer pressure and all this talk about transgender actually causing people to declare themselves transgender when they don't that they don't they're not really in that category they just think that it's socially now acceptable and something that's cool and will give them a lot of attention in 2018 Lisa Littman who was then assistant professor at Brown University published a study in the science journal PLOS1 that examined parental reports of sudden or rapid onset of gender dysphoria appearing for the first time during puberty even or even after its completion. This gender dysphoria was unlike those historically observed in children, which were very rare and affected mostly young boys. Prior to our current state, which probably began 
somewhere around 2016, 2017, if you were talking about transgender issues that were genuine or that that gender dysphoria was something, a thing that was actually happening, it was happening primarily, rarely, in young boys. But all of a sudden you have this explosion of it happening in young girls. Moreover, symptoms appeared to occur after prolonged social media and Internet use and in the context of belonging to peer groups where one, multiple, or even all of the friends have become gender dysphoric and transgender identified during the same time frame. Look, if this was anything like a genuine disorder or psychological problem, those things don't happen in groups. They don't happen with certain groups on the Internet that all of a sudden, all of them decide to, that they, they have gender dysphoria at the same time. I mean, that's an indicator that this is a contagion. It's something that is psychologically put out there by one or a group of people that then spreads to other people who decide that they think it's a cool idea and they decide to join. This is not a genuine condition. It's something that's being conditioned by social media. Lippmann posited peer and social contagion defined by the American Psychological Association as the spread of behaviors, attitudes, and effect through crowds and other types of social aggregates from one member to another. Now, that's scientific jargon. It just simply means that this thing is spread by personal contact, that Turns out gender dysphoria can be caught from one person to another, not because it's biological, but because it's psychological. And that's how it spreads. As one contributing factor in the rising number of gender dysphoric youth is the, this idea of it spreading through groupthink. Much to her surprise, activists were incensed by the suggestion. Well, of course they were. Because in order to gain acceptance, they've got to get you to believe the same lie about homosexuality, which is that it's something that you're born with and that you can't change. For transgender or dysphoria, or gender dysphoria to triumph here, it's got to be presented as something that is like a uh, characteristic like skin color. And so it, it, it's got to be immutable something that you can't do anything about. Under pressure, PLOS 1 temporarily rescinded the paper, eventually reissuing it with a highly unusual correction notice that offered no correction. The paper was reprinted the way that it was printed originally, but they made it sound like, oh, we've made some corrections here so that it's no longer offensive, which is really interesting. What it offered were additional clarifications, uh, clarifications and context for the article in response to questions raised during the post-publication review of the work, which mostly reiterated the limitations Littman had acknowledged in her original version, that her paper relied on parental, not patient reports, and that additional research was needed to further support her hypothesis. For years, liberal journalists and clini uh, clinician activists searched for ways to discredit Littman's theory. 
in August 2022, NBC News declared the case closed, citing a new study published in Pediatrics, the flagship journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, that allegedly proved that social contagion is not driving an increasing number of adolescents to come out as transgender. On closer inspection, however, the study cited by NBC News proved nothing of the sort. See, that the news media is just lying to you about the outcome of these so-called scientific experiments, psychological papers. They're, they're telling you that it says one thing when they know that most people are not going to take the time to sit down and read it. They're just going to read the headline, they're going to take what NBC News says is the gospel, and they're going to move on. Its lead author, though, in this report that NBC News referenced, Jack Turbin, an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, and a transgender activist, had relied on faulty statistics. According to the CDC survey data that Turbin examined, in 2017 and 2019, there were more male-to-female than female-to-male transitions. Since Littman had hypnotized uh, excuse me, hypothesized that more biological females presented with gender dysphoria, Turbin argued that Lippmann's hypothesis could be dismissed. However, the CDC had not asked survey respondents whether they had been registered as male or female at birth. The questionnaire's designer acknowledged this issue and underscored the uncertainty as to whether transgender students re responded to the sex question or with their sex or gender identity. In other words, they, when, when they did the study, after saying, well, it's mostly male to female, they, they don't know that because they don't know when people answered the question about their sexual identity, if they were talking about their birth identity or if they were talking about the identity that they'd taken on. And if you don't know the difference between those things, the research is worthless and the conclusions are bogus. Turbin et al., all the people that was on the study with him, assumed that the survey participants had responded with their biological sex. Moreover, they failed to address in any meaningful sense the other evidence suggested of social contagion, that gender dysphoria appears in clusters disproportionate to the national average, and that there are increasingly visible numbers of detransitioners or individuals who end up abandoning their transgender identity after they've transi trans, uh, transitioned. The problem is that if they have biologically altering or body-altering surgery, it's not that easy to go back once you've transitioned. And it's also not that easy to get off of puberty-blocking drugs that can have other bad effects on children that are approaching puberty. So, look... Here, it's clear. The Europeans have come to this conclusion, and now the United States needs to reach the same conclusion, that a lot of gender dysphoria is hysteria that is spread through social media. It is not something that is happening on, a, on the level that it's being portrayed. All right, that's all the time that we've got for today, but we'll be back in the morning, 7 o'clock. Going to be a lot of stuff going on in Columbia tomorrow, and I'll be heading out there, but it'll be after the show. 
So I hope you, you'll join us in the morning at 7 o'clock for Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. Tell your friends about the program. Let's spread the word.